If you have your Bibles this morning, I ask you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Probably one of the more difficult and more neglected chapters in our New Testament. Hear now the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person. From among you. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, you know, this passage that we just read from the Word of God can be a difficult one for us to process because of some of the very stern things that Paul says, and also because we carry around some preconceived notions about authority, about judgment, about church discipline that are not always biblically and theologically informed. This is by no means an easy text or a comfortable text to work through, but I am convinced this is a text that God's people need to consider carefully, and especially in a culture like ours, which in many ways mirrors the culture of ancient Corinth. A culture and a society that is increasingly marked by sexual liberty, sexual immorality, rapidly changing attitudes towards sex both inside the church and outside the church. It may be very tempting for us to ignore the reality that we are living in today, to pretend that everything is okay in the North American church, and to avoid these potentially difficult and awkward conversations about sex and church discipline, but we would do so at our own spiritual peril. I don't need to tell you the world around us is changing at an alarming rate. And we need to be men and women of faith who are aware of what is going on around us so we can respond appropriately to these changes in a way that will bring glory to Christ, maintain purity in our lives and in our churches. And so as I said last week, we are going to speak where the Bible speaks 
And we will submit ourselves to the authority of God's word in everything it affirms, whether we like it or not, whether it's popular or not, whether it makes us comfortable or not. Now, there are a number of important issues that need to be unpacked and discussed here in 1 Corinthians 5, and there's no way that we're going to do justice to this text in the next 30 minutes. And so with God's help, we're going to take our time and carefully work our way through the material in this chapter and chapter 6 as it relates to sexual morality and the maintenance of spiritual discipline and holiness in the church of Jesus Christ. This morning, our focus is going to be on the first few verses of chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul describes a situation in the church of Corinth that required discipline, where he outlines a strategy the church is to follow in dealing with members who are unwilling to repent. And so that's where we're heading in our time together this morning. In the next few weeks, I trust and I pray that this will be a challenging and a profitable time in the Word of God for all of us. We begin our time together this morning with a surprising revelation of sin in the Corinthian church that's described by the Apostle Paul in verses 1 and 2 of the text. And let's read those verses again. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. To this point in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been dealing with the issue of division and schism within the church. And as I mentioned last time, chapter 4 is a transitional section in the letter where Paul concludes his discussion on church unity and prepares the way for a new discussion on church discipline. Now last week, you'll remember, I hope, that Paul speaks to the Corinthian church in a very stern, perhaps even surprising way, rebuking them with the authority of an apostle and then warning them and correcting them with the gentleness and concern of a father. Paul knows that the situation in this church will not be resolved without a personal pastoral visit. And in the concluding verses of chapter 4, he presents the Corinthian church with a sobering choice. Should I come to you guys with the rod? Or should I come to you in a spirit of gentleness? He threatens the church with discipline at the end of chapter 4. And when we turn the page and get into chapter 5 and then chapter 6, we get a much clearer picture of why this kind of action was necessary and why Paul is speaking to the church in such a stern and a forceful way. Church unity was just the tip of the iceberg in Corinth. As we work our way through the rest of these inspired chapters, we are going to see how messed up this church really was. Corinth was a messed up church that was wrestling with all kinds of moral problems and cultural pressures. And Paul knows that a gentle pep talk and slap on the back is not what's needed to get this church back on track. Things have gone so wrong in Corinth that the church's future existence hangs in the balance. And Paul is determined to do whatever is necessary to address the issue at hand to get this body of believers back to a place of spiritual health and holiness before God. Paul is not going to sweep the Corinthian sin under the rug. He is not going to forget about their problems and pretend they don't exist. Paul is going to confront the elephant in the room and he is going to do everything necessary to chase the elephant out the front door. 
As we've already seen, the first report that Paul received from the Corinthians came from a woman named Chloe, but now in chapter 5, we learn that other reports have been circulating about a member of this church whose behavior is dragging the name of Christ through the mud and is bringing the entire church family into disrepute. He is committing a sin that is so outrageous that even the pagans of Corinth are scandalized. You look at the text again. Notice that most of our English Bibles translate verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And that rendering underscores the shocking nature of the sin, which of course is true. But in this case, I think the old King James does a better job of capturing the sense of the original language. In the King James Version we read, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. In the King James translation, the emphasis is not so much on the shocking nature of the sin, but rather on the fact that this man's sin has become common knowledge. It is commonly reported that there is fornication among you. Apparently everyone and their brother knew what was going on with this fellow, but nobody in the Corinthian church was willing to deal with it. And what troubles the Apostle Paul about the situation is not so much that someone has sinned in the church, but rather that the sin in question is being tolerated by the congregation and by the leadership. Paul is deeply distressed by the inactivity of the church. He is upset that the news of their tolerance and inaction has spread far and wide so that this disgraceful situation is now common knowledge both inside of the church and outside on the streets of Corinth. Reports about this professing Christian and his immorality were streaming into Ephesus. Paul has evidently confirmed the veracity of the charges, for he speaks here to the Corinthian church with unflinching conviction and authority about what action they must now take against him. Verse 1 of our text, Paul raises the issue of sexual immorality in the church. He uses a Greek word there that is very broad in general. The word in Greek is porneia, you will probably recognize it, get a general sense of what it means from our English word, pornography. Originally, this Greek word was used to describe prostitution, but by the time of Jesus and Paul, it had developed into a broad and general term that described every kind of sexual sin you can imagine and perhaps some forms of sexual sin that you cannot. That is the sense in which Paul is using the word here. Sexual immorality has entered into the church of Christ, the one place where it doesn't belong. Now, as we spoke about back in our introductory message to this book, the city of Corinth was a place famous throughout the Roman Empire for sexual immorality and even for sex tourism. Without question, Corinth was the sin city of the ancient world, so much so that a new Greek word was invented and named after the city. To Corinthianize meant to engage in sexual sin. And as we've already mentioned, a good part of this city's reputation came from the thousands of prostitutes who lived there who served every day at the temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. During the daytime, the prostitutes would serve as pagan worshippers at the temple. At night, they would descend into the streets of Corinth where there was never a shortage of patronage from the visiting merchants and visitors. 
prostitution, sexual immorality was part of the cultural fiber in Corinth, the majority of Gentiles who'd come to know the Lord Jesus had at one time been full and eager participants in this lifestyle. Paul will tell us later on in chapter 6, many members of the Corinthian church were at one time involved in sexual immorality and idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, theft, drunkenness, many other sins. But through the blood of Christ, by the grace of God, they had been washed, they had been sanctified, they had been justified by, in the name of Jesus Christ. God had done a marvelous transforming work in the lives of the Corinthians. He had delivered them from their bondage to sexual sin. But as we all know from personal experience, old habits sometimes die hard. And it seems that some of the old patterns of life were still hanging on and were causing trouble in the Corinthian church. And because these Christians were living in a sexually charged culture, the temptation to return to the old way of life was always there and it was very strong. Immorality from the pagan culture was infiltrating the Corinthian church. And here in the opening verses of chapter 5, we read about a man in the church who is committing a sin that was not even tolerated and accepted among the pagan Gentiles of Corinth, the sin of incest. As Paul describes it in verse 2, a man who has his father's wife. Although it's conceivable that this man was in a sexual relationship with his biological mother, that is unlikely in this context because of the way Paul describes her. He describes her as his father's wife. Most likely scenario here is that this individual has become sexually involved with his stepmother. And although we might hope and wish that this was a one-time occurrence that is now over and done with, the present tense verb that Paul uses in verse 2 makes it evident this is an ongoing relationship. Everybody inside the church and outside the church knows exactly what's going on. He does not say that the man had his father's wife. He says the man has his father's wife, indicating the ongoing, unrepentant nature of the sin. Now, we're not told by the Apostle Paul whether the man's father was alive or dead at the time of writing, but assuming the father was still living, this relationship was not only incestuous, it was also adulterous. And to compound the dysfunction even further, it would appear that the stepmother was not a Christian and that she was not a member of the church since Paul gives no specific instruction for the church to discipline her along with her son. And so what we are dealing with here in our text is not the kind of sexual behavior that would merely raise eyebrows in the community. This is the kind of behavior that would turn stomachs. And even in the ancient society of Greece and Rome, where homosexuality and pedophilia and bigamy, fornication, prostitution were all socially accepted and practiced openly, the sin of incest was viewed with utter disdain. Roman lawyer Cicero, who lived a few decades before Paul, writes about the sin of incest with repulsion, even suggesting it was a violation of Roman law, one of the few sexual practices that the promiscuous Greeks and Romans were unwilling to permit. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament teaching, you will know that incest is strongly condemned in the moral law of God. For we read in Leviticus 18 these words of instruction. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. 
You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Seems common sense. Apparently not. The text goes on from there to list a whole variety of forbidden sexual practices and concludes with the Lord telling His covenant people not to make themselves unclean by any of these things. For by all of these things, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean and the land becomes unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Incest is a form of immorality universally condemned in Paul's day and in ours, but here in the church of Corinth, an incestuous relationship was being publicly flaunted by one of the church members and it was being condoned by the congregation and church leadership. Scandalous reports about this man's relationship with his mother were known in the city, and as a result, the name of Christ was being dragged through the muck. The witness of the church in Corinth was being destroyed. Something needed to be done, and Paul is now going to force the issue. It's very difficult to say why the Corinthians were tolerating the sin of incest, but clearly, the spirit of toleration is what bothers Paul the most. We might assume that Paul is writing this chapter to rebuke the man for what he's done. In actual fact, Paul is writing to rebuke the church for what it has not done. He is rebuking the church for their unbiblical tolerance of sin, their false display of humility, which was little more than rebellion against God. It is possible that the Corinthians were condoning this sin because they had embraced a lawless, licentious form of antinomianism, the kind of easygoing attitude towards sin that the Apostle Paul condemns in Romans 6. You see, Paul understood that his strong emphasis on salvation by grace alone through faith alone would be misunderstood and misapplied by certain elements in the church. He knew that there would be some people in the church who would view salvation by grace alone as a license to claim God's forgiveness and then to go on and live however they please without fear of punishment. And so Paul asked the question in Romans 6 whether it is right for a Christian to continue in sin so that God's grace might abound and the answer comes down like a hammer. May God forbid. May it never be. How can we who have died to sin still live in it, Paul says. You see, Paul understood that some Christians would misunderstand the nature of saving grace, and it is quite possible that this was happening in Corinth, that they were openly and boldly sinning with the presumption that God would not hold them accountable for their actions. Perhaps it was an ancient version of the carnal Christian teaching we spoke about several weeks ago that makes holiness optional for the Christian. Another possibility that might explain the Corinthians' hesitance to confront this sin was their penchant towards people-pleasing and worldly wisdom. Some New Testament scholars have speculated that perhaps this man held a prominent position of leadership in the church, or perhaps that he was such a prominent individual in the community or the city that the Christians were afraid to confront him or to offend him. Now that's a possibility, of course, but it's a possibility that's impossible to prove from the text. 
Third possibility that I personally think is most likely is that the Corinthians prided themselves on being a community that was tolerant and open-minded just as many people in our modern context pride themselves on tolerance, open-mindedness, and non-judgmentalism. Very likely, the Corinthian church viewed church discipline the way many Christians still view it today. As something that is legalistic, something that is heavy-handed, something that is unchristlike, something that is pharisaical. And so rather than dealing with the unrepentant sinner in a biblical way, they instead chose to turn a blind eye to the situation, thinking that this was the kind and the loving and the humble thing to do. You know, at one time, I think the best known, the best loved, the most memorized verse in the Bible was John 3.16. Today, I think that verse has switched to Matthew 7.1. Judge not, lest you be judged. We hear this verse quoted endlessly today. We hear this verse twisted violently out of its biblical context by Christians and by non-Christians alike. Don't judge me until you're perfect, we sometimes hear people say. Let him who's, who, si- who has no sin cast the first stone. And of course, when we get into the habit of twisting verses out of context and throwing around popular catchphrases about judgment, the impression that we either give or receive is that there is no time and no place for any human being to judge another human being, Period. That is the message that many people in our culture want to hear. That is the message many people in our churches want to believe because it is a message that helps us to be at peace with our sin and because it is a message that helps us at some level to maintain a superficial peace, a superficial coexistence with others. But sadly, that is not the message contained in the Bible when we interpret it as a whole. Because if that were true that the Bible forbids human judgment in any way, in any shape, or in any form, you would have to tear this page straight out of the Bible. You'd also have to tear a lot of Paul's other statements out of the Scripture. You'd also have to tear some of Jesus' statements out of the Scripture when He goes after the Pharisees with scathing words of rebuke. You would have to tear out many of the sermons in the book of Acts. You would have to tear out the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. And by the time you were getting done, you were done getting rid of all the parts of the Bible that speak about the necessity to judge sin and wickedness, you would not have much New Testament left. For some reason or another, we have bought into the false notion today it is never permissible to cast judgment on another human being when the Lord Jesus and His apostles never taught us such a thing. Now to be sure, the Bible sets careful guidelines around judgment as we spoke about a few weeks ago. The Bible cautions us against a critical spirit, the tendency to judge things that we cannot see, the things that we cannot know for sure, such as the internal motives of another person's heart. As we're going to talk about in our next sermon in this series, the Bible sets forth limits and guidelines about how we are to interact and judge men and women outside of the local church who do not know Christ. 
But the Bible never forbids the judgment of sinful behavior in the church. Indeed, you will discover the Bible commands and expects that we will make these kinds of judgment in our churches, not in order to tear one another down, not in order to foster a sense of self-righteous superiority, not in order to satisfy a critical fault-finding tendency, but rather to build one another up in love and to root out the remnants of sin from our hearts and from our churches. In our effort to avoid the extreme of legalism and self-righteousness and Pharisaism, we have often retreated into the opposite extreme, the extreme of complete and unequivocal tolerance of sin. Because of this, the practice of church discipline has all but vanished in the evangelical church. It is seen as a remnant of a bygone religious era of intolerance, and the attitude of many Christians has been to say, good riddance, we're glad to be rid of it. But then we come across a biblical passage like this one in 1 Corinthians 5. A passage that challenges our dismissive attitudes towards authority, discipline, membership in the local church. The Corinthians thought they were being very tolerant, very humble, very kind, very loving by refusing to deal with this unrepentant man. But Paul flips that idea on its head and he tells them the real issue with you guys is not your humility. The real problem is your arrogance. Verse 2. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be, be removed from among you. Corinthians had been conditioned to believe that tolerance of unrepentant sin was evidence of Christian love and humility, but Paul tells them in no uncertain terms their tolerance is evidence of spiritual arrogance and rebellion against God. And I am quite positive that Paul's words written in this letter landed like a bombshell when the letter was read publicly in the Corinthian church with the man in question sitting right there among him and persisting in his sin. Brothers and sisters, the Corinthian church needed to have their theology and their thinking recalibrated by the Apostle Paul, and so does the church in North America. Like the Corinthians, we can very easily mistake tolerance for humility. We can mistake a lack of discipline for love. When the Bible tells us that true Christian love demands discipline and demands accountability. That's true inside of our homes, it's true in our families, it is also true in our churches. A church that tolerates unrepentant sin might appear on the surface to be a loving and tolerant community when in fact it is in God's eyes a rebellious and an arrogant community. The truth is that tolerance of unrepentant sin in our churches will ultimately destroy our witness and our credibility to a watching world. That was the issue in ancient Corinth, and it is still the issue today. Unbiblical ideas about tolerance, accountability, authority, and love for the sinner. Friends, when we see churches and denominations in Canada, the United States, and Europe that do not hold themselves accountable to a biblical standard on sexuality, we are not looking at humble churches and denominations. We are looking at arrogant ones. It is not humble to bless what God has forbidden. It is not humble to tolerate what God has condemned. 
Churches that do not hold their members to biblical standards about sex within marriage are not humble churches, they are arrogant. Churches that do not hold their members accountable to biblical standards on divorce and remarriage are not humble churches, they are arrogant. Churches that do not hold their members to biblical standards on same-sex relationships in marriage are not humble churches, they are arrogant. Churches that do not hold their members accountable for what they view on the internet and on television and in movies are not humble churches, they are arrogant. It is arrogant and it is unloving, brothers and sisters, to condone and to bless what God has forbidden and cursed in His Word. It is arrogant and it is unloving to turn a blind eye to behavior that will ultimately lead a professing Christian down the broad pathway to hell if it is not repented of and dealt with. Let no one deceive you with empty words, Paul says in Ephesians 5-6, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You know, in the message so far, I've repeated one word over and over again, and I want to draw special attention to that word at this point in the sermon because it is critically important to a right understanding and interpretation of this text. The word I have intentionally repeated many times in this message is the word unrepentant. And if you're following along in the sermon notes, I want you to star it, to underline it, to circle it, so you don't misunderstand what this text is teaching about discipline and accountability. When Paul speaks here about the Corinthians' tolerance of sin, and he says that the church is not to tolerate the sin of this man, he is speaking about unrepentant sin. Hear me very carefully on this. We are not talking today about sins that you've committed in the past for which you have already repented and been forgiven by Christ. The past is the past, and if Christ has forgiven you for past sins, there is no need for you to bear the guilt and the shame of those sins for even one more minute. Also understand, we are not talking today about sins that you continue to commit in the present that you are fighting against through the power of the Holy Spirit and mourning and grieving over with a repentant and contrite heart. There's a big difference between a struggling Christian who is actively fighting against sin and pursuing holiness and an unrepentant believer who has made peace with that sin and is no longer fighting against it. Now this distinction is crucially important to the discussion we're having today on discipline. And if you don't leave this place with that distinction firmly embedded in your mind and your heart, I fear that you will leave this place with a burden of false guilt that Christ does not want you to bear. It's my greatest fear in preaching this message this morning that you will walk out of here with false guilt and shame that God does not want you to bear. And so please understand, Paul is not advocating we discipline struggling Christians who are battling with sin and mourning over sin, sometimes faltering and stumbling into sin, because if that were true, we would all need to be put under church discipline. We are speaking this morning about an unrepentant, professing Christian who is justifying sin, who is stubbornly refusing to fight against it and to turn away from it. I also want to be sensitive this morning to the fact that some of us here in this room may have gone through sexual abuse and trauma at the hands of another person. And if that describes you, I want to assure you this morning, God is not angry with you in any way. He is angry with your abuser. Church discipline is never ever for victims of sexual abuse. It is for the abuser. 
Finally, it's important that we make a distinction this morning between sexual sin and sexual temptation. Sexual temptation is something we will all face in one form or another, but to be tempted by sin is not to be guilty of sin. We may be tempted to look lustfully at a person who is not our spouse. We may be tempted to click on a certain website when no one is looking, but it doesn't become a sin until we take the action and give in to it. We know from the Scripture our Lord Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, but yet He remained completely pure and without sin through His entire life. The Bible also tells us that when we are tempted to sin against God, the Holy Spirit who lives within us will give us the power to say no to that temptation and to resist the enemy's trap. As Christians, we are not helpless victims of our sin nature. We are spirit-indwelt children of God who have a supernatural ability to discipline our minds and our bodies and our wills so they become submissive and honor and glorify Christ. Every person in this room today is going to be tempted to sin in some way before we put our head on the pillow tonight, but the temptation itself is not sin, and church discipline is not for people who struggle with temptation. It is for people who have given themselves over to those temptations and committed themselves to a pathway of habitual and unrepentant sin. We're going to have a lot more to say about church discipline in a few weeks when we study the remainder of this chapter and then move into chapter 6. But as we conclude our time in the Word of God this morning, I don't think there is any way that we can look at a passage like this one without carefully examining our own hearts, our own reactions to what we've been reading and learning in Holy Scripture. I would imagine that some of us here today bristle when we hear the words church and discipline in the same sentence. And perhaps there's good reason for that kind of reaction. Well, it is true that there are many examples of churches that practice discipline in the right way with the right motives and heart. Many other churches have used Paul's teaching here in this chapter to justify spiritual abuse and to exercise tyranny over the membership. When church discipline is exercised with the right heart, with the right motive, for the right reasons, it can be a powerful means of grace that God will use to bring healing and restoration to His people. Many wandering sheep have been brought back into the fold when churches have been courageous and loving enough to put this difficult teaching into practice. On the other hand, when church discipline is enforced in a non-biblical way, when it is used to enforce non-biblical traditions or to stoke the ego of a power-hungry leader, it can be a very dangerous and very destructive thing. And so I fully understand this morning this teaching can be abused if you have experienced that in the past or know someone else who has. My heart goes out to you. But that being said, I want to challenge you. Just because some parts of the Bible's teaching have been used to cause spiritual harm does not mean that we do away with that teaching or pretend that it's not there. Fire has the ability to cause great harm, but I wouldn't want to go camping without one. Knives have the ability to cause great harm, but it's pretty difficult for a surgeon to do his job without one. Cars have the ability to do great harm, but I'm sure I'm thankful that I have one to get back and forth to the grocery store. I think you get the point. The fact that something can be misused and abused doesn't mean we throw it out the window, and especially not when it is written in the inspired Word of God. 
please also know this morning that when I am preaching and speaking to you, I'm preaching and speaking to me. If you're a member of this church and you start to wander off towards the cliff, I'm going to come and rescue you. Or at least I'm going to do what I can. And if you see me walking towards the cliff, please do the same. See, church discipline is not just for the congregation. Church discipline is for leaders too. And so what I'm saying to you, I'm saying to me. For those of us who may have had a bad experience in the past, for those of us who have issues with spiritual authority in the church, for those of us who are not persuaded about church membership, I want to encourage you this morning, allow the Word of God to recalibrate your thinking, to recalibrate your theology on these things so that your mind is renewed. Sometimes the Word of God challenges our thinking, and that is often a very good thing. Finally, we cannot possibly look at a passage like this one today without examining our own hearts before the Lord to determine if there are any areas of immorality we need to deal with, any areas of spiritual struggle in our lives where we have given up the fight and have given ourselves over to temptation and to immorality. The proper response to sin within our churches and sin within our own lives is not to tolerate it or to justify it, but rather to mourn over it and to fight against it. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, for they will be comforted. Brothers and sisters, if we keep our sins and our struggles deeply hidden in the dark, we can be sure that eventually those things will get exposed. They will get brought into the light. When I was a kid, my dad used to, used to quote Numbers 32-23 to me all the time, and I would never forget it. The verse says, be sure your sins will find you out. My dad didn't let me forget it. It's a true biblical principle. One way or another, hidden sins will come out into the open. And God will bring us to the point where we need to deal with them. Because He's a God who loves us too much to leave us as we are. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Amen.